Chapter 13 of The Bridge of History Over the Gulf of Time by Thomas Cooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13 The Arch of Muhammad. What shall we call the 7th century? I say the demands of general history direct us to call it the Arch of Muhammad. No one doubts that Muhammad was a really existing human person, a native of Arabia, that although born of a lofty race, he became poor and drove the camels of a rich widow to the fairs of Syria where he heard and witnessed the quarrels of the Jews, Christians, and pagans, and that this set upon him the project of devising a religion which should end all their quarrels in unity of worship. No one doubts these well-known incidents of the history of Muhammad, that he began after his marriage with the rich widow and emancipation from poverty to retire to a cave, and profess to have visions of the angel Gabriel, and to receive revelations which he embodied in writing as parts of the future Quran that his first attempts at assuming the character of prophet were unsuccessful, and that he fled to another part of the country, and instead of trying to bring over the Jews addressed himself to the pagan Arabs, by whom his cause was taken up with enthusiasm, are also historical events respecting which there is no doubt. I need not dwell more at length on the history of Mohammed. I remember to have been asked more than once by doubters, whether it be not as difficult to account for the spread and existence of Mohammedanism as it is to account for the spread and existence of Christianity. I very readily answer no, because while the religion of Christ is a religion of meekness and love and self-denial, the religion of Muhammad is most powerfully adapted to captivate the two great passions of the human mind, the love of conquest and the love of sensual enjoyment. At one period in history it looked as if Mohammedan conquest would be universal, but the Almighty Hand stayed it, and now Mohammedanism is a declining religion and a declining power in the world. But what said Mohammed of Christianity? Did he say it was only the old fable of the sun in a new form? Nay, he proclaimed that God had sent three great prophets into the world before himself, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, the son of Mary, that Jesus proclaimed the Comforter should come, and that he, Mohammed, was the Comforter. It is not likely that there is a single Mohammedan in the world who doubts that Jesus lived on earth and wrought miracles. We must not forget the existence of the sect called Paulicians in this century. Although charged with the old Oriental errors included in Manichaeanism, it is clear they were Pauline Christians, Christians who defended the purity of their views by appealing to the writings of St. Paul. They were sufferers by persecution to such a degree that they began to quit Armenia and to take refuge in Europe. They were the predecessors of the Bulgarians, Waldenses, Albigenses, Paterines, Hussites, and Lollards. Gibbon clearly shows in the line of descent, so to call it, of pure and persecuted Christianity, and he was charged with mistake until Guizot went over all his authorities and confirmed Gibbon's valuable statement. Following my own bent for connecting our chief inquiry as much as possible with our dear old England, I would have preferred to call this seventh century the Arch of Venerable Bede. If you young men were to make some actual search for antiquarian proofs of the existence of the Christian religion, you could scarcely fail to do what I have done, visit Jaro on the banks of Tyne. There are the crumbling remains of the monastery in which Bede studied. In a room of the adjoining church they show you Bede's chair, or remains of it. There is no reason to doubt that the chair was used by Bede, nor the tradition that he died a few moments after quitting it, having pronounced the last words of his translation of St. John's Gospel, and then having fallen on his knees, and breathed out his soul in prayer. If afterward you were to visit the ancient castle of Durham, you might see what I have seen twice, 
a more remarkable curiosity than the chair of bead. What is it? say you. A large coffin, hewed out of the bowl of an oak, and standing on four oak wheels. That was the coffin of St. Cuthbert at one time, and also of Bede, his teacher, for they dug up the body of Bede at Jarrow, and placed it beside the body of St. Cuthbert, and their custom was, in those dark ages, as they are justly called, to wield that coffin about in the petty battles of the Heptarchy, with a belief that the sanctity of the persons to whom the bodies had belonged would bring them victory. Dark Ages was the darkness really greater than in our age? Men thank God for victory now, and do not pretend to win it by any sanctity whatever, either of their own or other people's. Again, I say, if you, young Englishmen, were disposed to make actual search for antiquarian proofs of the existence of Christianity in your own land, you might visit Whitby, on the east coast of Yorkshire, and see the grand ruins of the abbey on that lofty rock near the German Ocean, and call to mind that they stand near the spot where the first religious house in those parts was built by the Lady Hilda, the Saxon princess, whose name is so familiar for her piety, prayer, and almsgiving, to even the poorest along the neighboring shores of Durham and Yorkshire to this day. Lastly, if you were to travel north, as if you meant to reach Scotland, keeping still by the German Ocean long before you come to Berwick-on-Tweed, you would see in the sea a considerable islet, the Holy Isle, and Lindisfarne, it is also called. On that isle you would see the ruins of the monastery in which Cuthbert studied. Now, what I want to impress on your minds is not the notion that there is any sanctity or spiritual value in the objects you would see. I am not a teacher of popery, you know. But what I want to impress upon your minds is this thoughtful conclusion. A man looking upon that chair of venerable bead might as well deny that he sees a chair at all. A man looking upon that grotesque coffin of Cuthbert on its wheels might as well deny that there are either coffin or wheels before his eyes. A man gazing upon those striking ruins on the rock of Whitby might as well deny that there are any abbey ruins there at all. And a man looking on the holy isle off the coast of Northumberland might as well deny that he sees it, or that it exists, as for a man to deny that Bede and Cuthbert and Hilda existed, and that they believed in Jesus Christ's existence and miracles, and death, and resurrection, and taught that these were facts in the seventh century on English soil. The lives of Bede and Cuthbert and Hilda are a part of the history and existence of the soil. One might as well doubt that the soil itself existed as that the actors existed whose existence is so indubitably attested. The body of Cuthbert in its leaden coffin was dug up and reinterred but a few years ago. The mind of Bede exists in the church history and other works that remain, and the spirit of Hilda exists in the remembrance of her goodness. Where again, I ask, did the Christian religion come from? How came Bede and Cuthbert and Hilda, and thousands besides in our own land, and how came millions in other lands to be believing in the seventh century that Jesus of Nazareth lived on this earth, chose his twelve apostles, taught his great doctrines, performed his miracles, was crucified, and rose again from the dead? Are none of these facts, are they no more than so many items in the new fable fashioned upon the old fable of the sun? Let us once more pursue our forward, 
or rather backward march and see if we find the christian religion in existence upon that arch of our bridge of history which stands before the arch of muhammad or as we would prefer to term it the arch of venerable bede End of chapter 13